Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Our God, unveil your truth to us. May we know it, and may it set us free. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I was a young lad, but I remember the day very distinctly. I can still remember the day my father brought home a large box. He brought it into the living room and dispensed with the television that was there, putting it in the kitchen, and we were all wondering what was going on. And out from the box emerged a color television. I couldn't believe it. I'm not sure I've ever seen a color television in the home. I'd seen it in a store, but that was about it. I was a very young lad. Uh, The TV was turned on, and I was transfixed. I was even mesmerized by the news, and for a five or six-year-old, that's something. Here, this man, Kenneth Baker, I think what is his name, he was reading the news, but he had a red tie on, and I could see it was red. I'd be absolutely mesmerized by that, even the news. I think for many of us, you can remember the time when you first saw a color television for those past a certain date. 
It's uh, what you've always grown up with. But before color, there was black and white. How many remember black and white television? Wow, that's, that's a lot. There it is. But I'd make this statement. Once you've seen color, you don't want to go back to black and white. You can watch black and white movies, but you're always excited when they've done the arduous work of bringing that white and black, black and white movie into living color, and you want to watch it again in color. Linda and I did that recently with an old movie. What I'd like to do today is take you on something of a biblical tour in order to see the cross in full color. The question we want to ask ourselves is this. What was God's intention in the cross? What was he seeking to do? And did he do it? Look in verse 9. But in seeing him who for a little while we see him who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Who is the everyone? I remember not that long ago watching a YouTube video where some crazed individual was shouting in the camera, everyone means everyone. And I wanted to shout back, everyone who? No one was listening, so I didn't shout. But we need to ask the question, who is the everyone of verse 9? And in beginning this biblical tour, I'd like us to go to the Old Testament first and hold your place in Hebrews, I believe we'll be back, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. And this, of course, is the prophetic statement, above all prophetic statements, I think, in terms of one single passage, Psalm 22 is also a rival, to portray the cross. 700 years before it happens. That's when Isaiah wrote this. Uh, what he wrote is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the suffering servant. So as we go to Isaiah 53, we have what I believe to be the heart of the gospel in verses 4 through 6. We'll just jump into the passage. Verse 4, Surely, surely, he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to ask this question. Who is being referred to here? Who is the our? Who is the we? Who is the everyone? Who is the us? In verse 4, it says our, and then it says our, and then it says we. In verse 5, the words are our, our, us, and we. And in verse 6, the we, the we, the everyone, the us. Well, everyone means everyone, right? All means all, right? Not always, no. That happens in our conversations today. To get the correct meaning when we're in a conversation, someone uses the word everyone or someone uses the word all, we understand that there's a context. 
Are you all getting this? When I say, are you all getting this, am I referring to the 8 billion people that are on the planet according to studies? I'm not sure, I've never counted that many. But I'm told 8 billion people are now on planet Earth. We crossed the threshold of the 8 billion mark back in November 2022. Aren't you excited? Is everybody getting that? Well, when a mother with her eight children, she has eight children, uh, gets into the van and says, are we all here? Is she asking the question, are all eight billion people in the car? No, there's a context for the word all. If she says, is everyone here? That's the time when probably the oldest one or the oldest two says, no, we're still waiting for Johnny. Johnny still hasn't come out of the kitchen. And hopefully they don't leave before Johnny joins them. So there's a context always with the word all and with the word everyone. That's true in English, it's true in every language, and it's true in in Scripture. As we look at Isaiah 53, we need to ask, who is the everyone? Who's the us? Who's the we? And most would say us and we and everyone means everyone on the planet. But is that the case? I believe the rest of the chapter explains the use of these terms. Go down to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Excuse me, that's chapter 52, verse 7, but I'm sure you were blessed hearing it. (laughs) 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Here it's a reference to his death. To be cut off out of the land of the living is a reference to death. Stricken for the transgression of my people. There it is. The us, the we, the everyone is now described as my people. He was struck for the sins and transgressions of my people. That's interesting, but that's just the first thing we come across. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, in uh, verse uh, 8, we have the reference to death. In verse 10, we have reference to resurrection. He shall prolong his days. He shall live again, in other words. For the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice, four things are discussed in verse 10, and there's an atonement that's made, an offering for guilt. Number two, we understand he shall see his offspring. That refers to his children. He shall prolong his days. That's resurrection. And God's will is accomplished. We see that in these amazing words. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's not hoping something happens. It gets done. What does? The will of the Lord. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, 
We should never rip verses out of their context. And sometimes verses 4 through 6 are ripped out of their context because in context there's an explanation about who the us, the we, the everyone is. And it includes verse 11. And things that emerge from verse 11 is that there is a satisfied Savior. Bear that in mind as we consider the cross. Jesus, who's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, is satisfied by what he does. Then we're told he makes many to be counted as righteous. Here we have the doctrine of imputation, the counting of God on the basis of uh, transfer of sins to Christ and righteousness to us. And by his sacrifice, he makes many to be counted as righteous. Not everyone, but many. And thirdly, he bears there. Do you see that in the text? Their iniquities. So we ask this question, whose iniquities does he bear? Answer from the text, the many he makes righteous. Then we come to verse 12. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here we're told in verse 12 that the many are given an inheritance by means of his soul being poured out in death. Secondly, he was numbered with the transgressors. This is a reference to the fact that he would die alongside criminals. Thirdly, he bore the sin of many. That speaks of atonement. And fourth, he makes intercession for the transgressors. So there's atonement and intercession. Intercession uh, and atonement, they're inseparably linked. And again, that's a key theme in Scripture. On the basis of what we just read in Isaiah 53, I submit to you that the our, the we, the everyone, and the us of verses 4 through 6 are the many he atones for and makes intercession for. They are my people, the my people of verse 8. That's the everyone. That's the us. Matthew 1, 21, no need to turn there. Do you remember when the angel came to Joseph and gave him construct, uh, information concerning uh, the child that was to be born. He gave him instructions, and this was the final one. Chapter 1, verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save... How many can finish it? His people from their sins. My question to you is this. Did he do it? Did he save his people. I believe he did. Jesus made it clear, Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want us now to go back to the book of Exodus. We're in the Old Testament in Isaiah. Go back even further to the second book, book of uh, Exodus, chapter 28. And here we're going to read about the Old Testament high priest. This is one of many places we could go to, but I want to just jump into the text where there's a reference to 
the clothing of the high priest. And this is very significant. If we drop down to verse 9, Exodus 28 and verse 9, and here's the instruction. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. There it is. What do we have here? Well, God had a chosen people, Israel. And the instruction was the names of the sons are to be inscribed. They are to be there, apparent on the clothing of the high priest. You'll notice it was not the names of those outside of Israel. None of the Amalekites are described. There was no reference to the Jebusites, no reference to any of the otherites out there. God's people alone. And there in the picture of the high priest... The high priest was one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to take the sins of God's people into the most holy place and before that making intercession and then a sacrifice for that same people. Not for the Amalekites, not for the Jebusites, but for the people of God. Let's go in the New Testament now to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. And we come across the phrase a phrase that is repeated many, many different times. All that are given to me. All whom the Father gives to me. John chapter 6, look with me in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I hear pages turning. John chapter 6 Verse 37, all, not some, not 80%, not 28%, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's the giving of the Father to the Son, a group of people in eternity past, that means that in time they will come to Christ. And then we're told this, whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Here's why. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, And this is the will of him who sent me. Now, before we see the uh, understanding of what that will is, let's recognize this. Jesus always does his Father's will. I could never conceive of Jesus failing to do his Father's will. And we're told what that will is. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it, that's the entire group, up on the last day, a a reference to eternal life. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me, that speaks of ability, the lack of it, no one can come to me unless 
the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So the Father gives to Jesus a group, a people. The Son comes and lives and dies for them, and in time they come to him, and it's the will of the Father that he lose none of those, but instead raise them all up on the last day, giving them eternal life. Now go to John chapter 17, a passage that was read earlier in our service. This is, of course, what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where we understand that Jesus is fulfilling all the types and shadows of the Old Testament, including that of the high priest. The high priest interceded for and atoned for the sins of God's people, and that's exactly what Jesus does in this chapter. Now, what I want to do is read this chapter fairly quickly, but with reference and emphasis upon certain words. And I think when I do that, it will really highlight something that is there staring us in the face. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they... Who is the they? The they are those the Father has given to him, the elect. This is eternal life, that they, the elect, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I think this is also a reference to Isaiah 53. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall do all the will of God. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to who? To the people whom you gave me. That's the elect out of the world. Yours, they were. Who's the they? The elect. And you gave them. Who's the them? The elect to me. And they, who's they? That's the elect, have kept your word. Now they, who's they? That's the elect. Know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them. Who's the them? The elect. The words that you gave me. And they, who's the they? That's the elect. Have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they, who's the they? That's the elect. Have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Who's the them? That's the elect. I am not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the Amalekites. I'm not praying for the Jebusites. I'm praying for them. I am praying for them, the elect. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. That's the elect. For they, the elect, are yours. All mine are yours. All yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Who's the them? The elect. And I'm no longer in the world, but they, that's the elect, are in the world. I'm not sure the Bible teaches election. I'll just keep reading. And I'm no longer in the world, but they, that's the elect, are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them, that's the elect, in your name, which you've given me, for that they, that's the elect, may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, that's the elect, I kept them, that's the elect, in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, that's the elect, and not one of them, that's the elect, has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that's the elect, 
may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Who's themselves? The elect. I have given them, that's the elect, your word. And the world has hated them, that's the elect, because they are not of the world, just... Oh, I missed a they. They, that's the elect, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them, that's the elect, out of the world, but that you keep them, that's the elect, from the evil one. They, that's the elect, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, that's the elect, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, that's the elect, into the world. And for their, that's the elect's sake, I consecrate myself that they, that's the elect, also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these, the elect only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the continuation of the elect, who will come in time to believe through the testimony given by the them, that they, that's the elect, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they, the elect, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory I've give, you have given me, I have given to them, that's the elect, that they, the elect, may be one even as we are one. Okay, we get the point. No, no, we haven't yet. Verse 23, I in them, the elect, and you in me, that they, the elect, may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, the elect, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they, the elect also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, that's the elect, know that you have sent me. I have made known to them, the elect, your name, and will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them, the elect, and I in them, the elect. All right, I think we get the point. I think we do. Let's go to John chapter 10, back just a few chapters. Jesus is very specific about who the them are. They are the sheep. He's the good shepherd, and a good shepherd doesn't lose sheep. It's a very poor shepherd, a bad shepherd, who has to report that he has lost even one. And that's the testimony of Scripture. Jesus doesn't lose the one. He goes after the one to bring uh, him, him or her back to the fold to join the 99. So it is. John chapter 10. There's so much in this passage. We're just going to jump in. Look at verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He couldn't be more clear. Now he's talking in the context of Israel, and he makes this statement, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I believe he's talking about the Jewish fold, and he says there are going to be Gentiles coming in. They're not of this fold. I must bring them also. Not, I've got a 50-50 chance, I'm leaving it to free will and all of that. No, I'm bringing them in, and they will listen to my voice, so there'll be one flock, one shepherd. There it is. 
Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah? Tell us plainly, Jesus answered them. I told you, and you do not believe. Now, Jesus is looking at a group of people in the eye and makes this declaration, you don't believe. You don't believe. These are unbelievers. Would you agree? Am I going too fast? Here it is. I told you, you don't believe. The words, excuse me, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... Stop, 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 stop. Why do you think they don't believe? Are we allowing ourselves to be taught by Jesus? You see, I used to have this view. If you're not a sheep, you can choose to become a sheep. How do you do that? By believing... In Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you can then be a sheep. Problem is that these words mitigate against that. Here's Jesus' explanation for the unbelief of the people he was looking at, right in the face. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You are not among your sh- my sheep. That's the reason you don't believe. Well, that went down really well, I'm sure. Well, read on. Yeah, they wanted to kill him. My sheep, in contrast, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, This group is in Jesus' hand, and this group is in the Father's hand. It's like Colossians says, uh, my life is hid with Christ in God. It's, It's a wonderful truth here. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're one here in mission. We're on the same mission, save the elect. The Father has given me a people. I'm living for them. I'm dying for them. I'm interceding for them. And they're all coming home, wagging their tails behind them. I and the Father are one. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying, and they picked up stones again to stone him. Why don't they believe? Because they're not of my sheep. Did Jesus lay down his life for both goats and sheep? I think to ask that question is to answer it. Jesus made it clear, I'm laying my life down for the sheep. The wonderful thing is we don't know who the sheep are. That's why we don't go up and ask, excuse me, excuse me, sir, are you a sheep? If you're a sheep, I'll bring you the gospel. No, we scatter the word We tell the good news of Christ to everyone, but God knows who his sheep are, and they will hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. It might not be the first time they hear the gospel. It might be the 48th time, but they're going to come home. They're going to come home all the way. 
Hear this. Goats never, ever, ever, ever become sheep. There's just sheep, and there are goats. And you might say, but I remember when I didn't follow Christ, and now I do. Well, you were always a sheep. You were just a lost sheep. Evangelism, you know what it is? It's the roundup of the sheep. Come to Christ, everyone! Everyone? Yeah, everyone, come! But we know in the back of our minds, only the sheep will come. I'm thankful to God. I don't have to work out who the elect are. They're not running around the countryside with letter, letter E stamped on their forehead. They look like you and me and such were us. This is in absolute agreement with what we see in the epistle to the Hebrews and in Ephesians. Remember in Ephesians... In fact, we've got a little bit of time. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. See familiar words there. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And then Ephesians 5 tells us this. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? For her. So husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up specifically for her. You would never say, this guy's a real great guy, he's a husband, why is he so great? Not only does he love his wife well, he loves everybody else's wife just the same way. Jesus was intentional, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands ought to, should, love their wives, not everyone else's, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves His wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Here it is. So, let's ask this question now. What was the design in the atonement? Who was it for? Steve Lawson answers it this way. The intent of the atonement is the extent of the atonement. We've had a look at... uh, the prefiguring of the cross in the Old Testament. Let's go to the end of our Bibles, to the book of Revelation, where we have an understanding of what I believe is to be a future event. The saints in glory around the throne, and their song is about the worthiness of the Lamb to receive worship. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They... That's the people of God gathered here. Sang a new song, Revelation 5 verse 9, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you, that's Christ, were slain, and by your blood, now we're going to find out what his blood achieved, the blood is a reference to his death on the cross, by your blood you ransom people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This does not describe everyone without exception. It refers to everyone without distinction. That's seen in that little phrase, two words in English, out of. Out of. Ek. We have the word exit, which tells us the way out. And this is the word that means out of, out from, out from where? Every tribe, every language, every people and nation. So again, it's not everybody in every nation, but there are ransom souls that he brings out from every tribe and language and people. And the Bible actually says he ransomed them. He didn't try to ransom everyone and leave it up to them if they would just choose and that would activate the whole thing. No, by his death on the cross, he ransomed a people. That's not the most popular view in the professing church today. The most popular view is something called a universal or general atonement. You might have heard of it. You might even believe it. I did for many a year. And there are a few isolated texts that seem to suggest this. Even though I've given you quite a broad picture already, there are some texts that at first glance appear to say, he died for everyone. And one of them, in fact, one of the big three or four of them, is found in Hebrews. I said we'd be back. Here we go. It's taken a while. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Now we're through with the introduction. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm glad you're laughing. Speaking of the suffering of death of Jesus, verse 9 says, so that, here's the purpose of his suffering and death, so that, the end of verse 9, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Well, there it is. That negates all you've said. Well, well does it? Taste death for everyone. Are you going to try and jump out of that one? I'd like to see you squirm and jump out of that one. I don't have to squirm. I just have to read the context. You see, most people don't stop to ask the question, who is the everyone? Because we assume everyone is everyone. And everyone is not always everyone, everyone of the time, all the time, all the time. Everyone means everyone. Start the car, Mildred. I'm out of here. If he can't agree that everyone is everyone, uh, which in Greek means, uh. (laughs) Hebrew, it's a little more complex. A good Bible student asks questions of the text and refuses to assume. I did this for decades. Now, you can go on. All I'm saying is, if you do, if you don't, analyze the text and look at it, I I submit to you, you'll always be reading your Bible in black and white. But if we don't assume and we examine our tradition, and by the way, everyone has them. Everyone has a tradition. It was James White who once said, everyone has a tradition. Those most blinded to their tradition are those who don't believe they have any. So how do we determine what everyone means? by looking at the context. That's what we did in Isaiah 53, and that's what we're going to do here. Look at verse 9. Death 
for everyone. I believe what follows gives us seven indications, seven, as to what is meant by everyone. Here we go. Just quickly. The first is in verse 10. The everyone refers to the many sons he brings to glory. Verse 11, the everyone refers to the brothers. Verse 13, the children God has given me. That's number three. Number four, verse 14, the children. Number five, verse 16, the offspring, the seed of Abraham. That's the everyone. Number six, verse 17, his brothers. And number seven, verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we've got the many sons he brings to glory, the brothers, the children God has given me, the children, the offspring of Abraham, his brothers, the sins of the people. The people are the seventh indicator. So that's who the everyone is. Every one of the many sons. I believe he died for everyone. Yeah, every one of the sons, the brothers, the children, the people. And if we don't quite grasp that, understand this technical word that is good for us to learn. You know, if you're going to teach your children eventually to drive, don't teach them at age eight, wait a little while. But once they are of sufficient age, a good parent will teach the child, if they can, how to drive. And along with that, you teach them certain things about the car, like where to put the gas. It's important to know where to put it and not to put it. It's important to understand what words like carburetor means and engine and all kinds of words fill in the gap. Loads and loads of different words. But one biblical word we need to understand if we're going to be good Bible students is propitiation. Can we say that word out loud together? Propitiation. And some like to dumb the Bible down a little bit by saying people won't understand that term, so let's just say sacrifice of atonement. I think uh, the NIV does that. I, I wish they didn't. I wish they'd just leave the right word in, the word that the Holy Spirit designated, and let's have Bible studies where we actually understand what the Holy Spirit has said, communicated, and learn those terms. Rather than leaving out in the instruction to a child the word carburetor and, uh, carburetor and describe the thing, just say, look, here's a word you need to know. This is a word we need to know. Propitiation means this. The removal of wrath, the removal of anger by means of a sacrifice. That's what it means. It's not just in the Old Testament and New Testament we find this theme. In many religions of the world, false religions, when there is a lack of rain, certain people, perhaps in certain places of South America in history, have thrown the young, beautiful virgin daughter over into the volcano to appease the God and to propitiate the gods, the gods who would bring rain. Tragic as that is, but they, they understand this. The gods are angry, that's why we're not getting rain. We must propitiate, we must bring a sacrifice that will remove the anger. You see the, the point? It's false religion, but the Bible has much to say about this same theme, and it's not 
throwing anyone else in. God threw his own son to the cross in that sense to propitiate his wrath. It was God's idea to remove wrath by means of a sacrifice. Now, let me ask this question. Do you see that in verse uh, 17? He's a high priest. That's the first mention of that wonderful theme we're going to find in Hebrews throughout from this point on. Faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I want to ask you this question. Did the sacrifice of Jesus make propitiation? The answer, I think, biblically is yes. It was not a hypothetical propitiation. It was actually the removal of wrath off of a people. In the universal, the general atonement view, propitiation is only potential propitiation. What I mean by that is this. The work of Jesus on the cross removes the anger of God if man will just choose to accept it. Though that is the most popular view, at least in our day, it hasn't been in history. From the time of the Reformation, there was this understanding that Christ came and did something for his people. He interceded for them in chapter 17 of John, and he died for them the very same day. It was the next day on the Gentile calendar. But in Jewish thinking... 6 p.m. marks the start of a new day. At night time, he's praying for them, and within 24 hours, he's dying for them. Same day. And I believe Jesus actually propitiated wrath by means of the cross. He removed wrath, not for everyone, but for those for whom the cross was intended. Now, we're just about out of time, and you might have a ton of questions. That's why we have other elders. Praise the Lord. But the universal view of the atonement, if true, would mean double jeopardy. You ever heard that term? It's a legal term. And if you were to look that up, what double jeopardy means is something that would be invalid according to the law. You'd have the prosecution of a person twice for the same offense. That's what double jeopardy is. In the universal view, you have double jeopardy. What do I mean by that? The anger of God is meted out on the sun, on the cross, and also, if the sinner doesn't choose to accept it, on the sinner in hell. Think about that. Think about it long and hard. I don't believe that's the true message. You'd have double jeopardy. Jesus paying for sins, and now the sinner paying for sins. Well, it was only a hypothetical atonement. I don't believe you'll find that concept in the Bible. No hypothetical atonement. Jesus actually atoned for sin. That would be a cruel injustice. No, he took our place. Who's the hour? His elect's place. There was no injustice taking place. Perish the thought. May it never be. God forbid. Augustus' top lady wrote this, Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, S-U-R-E-T-Y-S, and then again in mine. 
payment cannot be demanded twice. So where am I going with this? I believe in a very rich, full, full colour, powerful, effectual atonement. You see, unless we are universalists, what's that? A universalist is, as the word might describe, someone who believes the entire universe is saved. In other words, everybody gets saved. And if you believe your Bible, you understand not everybody comes into the kingdom. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. You just need to go to one scripture. There are hundreds of them that describes a hell and describes a place that people will actually go. So we're not universalists if we're Bible-believing Christians. We're all particularists. We believe that not everyone will be saved, only some. Now, amongst the particularists, there are two different types. One type limits the atonement one way, and another type limits it another. But we're all putting a limitation on the atonement. Why? Because not everybody's saved by the cross. We'll all agree, right? Not everyone comes into the kingdom because of the cross. Then we are not universalists. We are particularists. And amongst particularists, there are two views. One limits its extent, and one limits its power. Some limit its power. Why? Because it only becomes effective if man adds faith to the atoning work of Christ. Others limit its extent, and that's what I believe the Bible to teach. Joel Beakey once wrote this. In speaking of that universal view, something he does not hold to, he said this. We're told that Christ died to make it possible for everyone to be saved if they so choose. That's a rejection of the Reformed view that Christ died to actually save a particular people chosen by God. Speaking of the other view, he said, it is by far the most popular view of the atonement in the Christian church today. However, serious objections must be lodged against that universal redemption, among which are these. And he lists many. I'm just going to list the first one. It slanders God's attributes, such as his love. Now, it seems that that's not true. Because there's this general peanut butter spread love for everybody that is not in view anymore. But real love, seeing a child in the street with a car careering towards it, runs out into the street and saves the child. That's what God's love does for his elect people. The other view presents a love that doesn't actually save. It's a love that loves them and then if refused... That love turns to hatred and anger. It's not an unchangeable love that endures from everlasting to everlasting. All right, summing it up. Good, only seven pages of notes left. Good, praise the Lord. A universal view fails to capture the Old Testament imagery of the high priest, intercession and atonement. And this is a big one. It fractures the unity of the Trinity. What do I mean by that? That's a big thing to say. But in the universal view, you would have three different views of the atonement. Three different, it's one view, but three different groups are in view. 
You'd have God who chooses a people to save. That's one group. You'd have Jesus, the Son, dying for everyone. That's a different group. And thirdly, you'd have the Holy Spirit seeking to try to draw the people who hear the gospel. That's a different group again. Think that through. One of the reasons I embrace definite redemption is because of the unity of the Trinity. The Father chose a people to save. The Son died for that exact same people. And the Holy Spirit applies the redemption wrought by the Son to that same group. That's why salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. None of them will ever be lost. All the Father gives to Jesus, come to Jesus, and will be preserved, raised up on the last day. I believe this, Christ came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, not to try to save sinners. Lastly, Jesus is a mediator. When perhaps in a workplace situation, there's an estrangement between management and the workforce, a mediator will be called in to bring warring factions back together. That's the job of a mediator. I believe Jesus mediated perfectly. He's the perfect Savior who brings those who are estranged, his elect, to himself by the work of his cross. He didn't fail to mediate. He brought us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 talks about the suffering of Christ once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what our Bibles tells us. C.H. Spurgeon. We're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. They say, Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die us to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it's you who do that. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no one can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of anything but being saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Go Spurgey. What's the value of this? Well, I believe it's great in every way to understand that Christ 
came, if you're a believer, Christ came for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He was buried for you. He was raised for you. He's seated now in heavenly places making intercession for you. And this intercession is based on his perfect, finished, atoning work. There are many other things to discover about the cross. This is not the only thing to discover at all. But now, the box is opened, and you have a color TV. And we can now study the cross in its full, living, blazing color. At the cross, he saved a people. How do I know if I'm one of them? Have you come to him? The Lord Jesus Christ died an atoning death on the cross and rose again and is seated at the place of all authority in the universe. And anyone, anyone who repents and believes this good news is saved now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of our Lord. Write the truth of it on our hearts that we can say, he died for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. It's Christ who lives in me. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.